Welcome to the Macro View, episode 21. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. On episode 20, we debunked the mainstream Keynesian economic theory detailing the Great Depression, which by their account says that World War II deficit spending into the Great Depression. And we detailed last night how, in fact, said spending actually hurt the economy and caused net drag for decades to come. Tonight, on a much more concise show, we're going to be discussing the monetarist view, which was presented originally by Milton Friedman and his co-author Anna Schwartz in A Monetary History of the United States. One of the aspects of the Keynesian view of the Great Depression that we did not discuss last night was their view of monetary action at the time. From the Keynes, from Keynes's standpoint, the Fed had become basically impotent during the Great Depression and had, had pushed interest rates down in Keynes's view as far as they could go. And therefore, there's nothing left to be done by the Fed. That's when fiscal stimulus was adopted as a solution by Keynes. Milton Friedman and co-author Anna Schwartz in A Monetary History of the United States argued, however, that the Fed did not do enough. The theory at the time was considered revolutionary and caught on pretty strong with a lot of the non-Austrian school of thought right side of the political spectrum. The reason why is obvious. Well, it gave those a way to say no fiscal stimulus wasn't needed during the Great Depression. The argument that Friedman laid out was one that essentially said, and, and properly so, that low interest rates and quote-unquote easy money are not synonymous. While true, there's still a lot of flaws with the monetarist view of the Great Depression, namely that it purely encourages another unsustainable boom by continuing to prop up prices before markets fully clear, and it pulls its evidence from the previous decade and the fact that the Fed kept propping up the market at every downturn. When the Fed finally decided not to continue propping up the overvaluation of assets, then the market finally crashed. By Milton Friedman's account, had the Fed just propped up asset prices once again in 29, despite all the malinvestment and the fact that many businesses were booming on credit with no sustainable organic growth, Milton Friedman believes that the boom would have just continued. There's another issue with what Milton Friedman and the monetarists say, though, and that's the Depression of 1920, or the Panic of 1920. In fact, in 1920 we saw the exact opposite. We saw both fiscal austerity and budget cuts, and at the same time, we saw interest rates rise. The other problem with people that buy into the monetarist theory is often they can't explain other than World War II how America got out of the Great Depression. And then you're falling into the laps of big government spending Keynesians. So what happened during the Great Depression from a monetary standpoint? Tonight, I'm going to walk you through it. But first, a quick commercial break. Imagine learning more about economics in one short day than most people do in a lifetime. Imagine understanding how to demolish the common economic myths that many professional economists still believe after years of education. Imagine finally having a framework to confidently analyze the economic issues of our time rather than feeling overwhelmed by statist arguments. Well, stop imagining and start doing. Sign up and take the Mises Boot Camp online. In just three hours of lectures, a couple of slideshows, and a bit of reading, you'll be ready to take on the statist world of fallacies with no sweat. The best part is it's all free. 
For your convenience, you can find a link directly to the registration page in tonight's show notes at macroviewnews.com slash podcast. All right, everyone. Thanks for staying tuned tonight. We're going to try and run through some of the more recent monetary history. But before we do, I do want to take a, a step back really quickly. So I want to go back to the money supply and bank failure statistics. Now, understand the money supply did not begin to contract until after Herbert Hoover began implementing economic interventions. Also, I should point out that it was in 1933, after FDR confiscated gold from the American people, that bank failures accelerated. Now, it's true over the period of 29 to 32, about 24% of banks failed. But in 1933 alone, 24% of banks failed. And in 1932 is the next closest year, which had only 8% of the banks failing that year. And these uh, numbers were, you know, these years, and the reason for these numbers is that these years were just fraught with regime uncertainty, as Bob Higgs points out. Then, as I mentioned in the previous segment, you had World War II bubbling up, going into FDR's second term, and then coming out of the war, FDR was elected to a third term. During the war, he was, well, actually, he was elected to a third term during the war, and then a fourth term in 1946, which was right after the war, which again was unprecedented. And we had just finished fighting dictatorships that begun as, you know, a democratic election. It was unprecedented. It broke the tradition of peaceful transi- transition to a new president after two years that had been upheld since Washington. So while in 33, it was the bottom as, as far as bank failures and money supply in terms of the, you know, just the number of solvent banks. They started to pick up a little bit in 34 and 35, but then came a wave of failure, failure that set in again by 1942. And then almost a decade, you got to think about it. This is almost a decade later. It's leading into FDR's third election campaign. There had been a net growth of 1% in the number of banks from bottom. And then there's a slide of 7% from 1935. So within this this eight-year period or seven-year period, a slide of 7% in the net number. So I think it's very clear to say that regime uncertainty and an unprecedented level of government intervention into the economy dragged the depression on a lot longer than otherwise would have been. As discussed in episode 20, Government spending during World War, World War II did nothing more than distort markets and uh, help to print data, aggre- you know, aggregate data numbers that kind of looked nice but didn't really mean anything. The Depression kept going, and officially, three years after World War II ended, real private GDP per capita bottomed out, and it took 17 years from that bottom to recover from the massive distortions created by government nationalization of industry and productivity that was specifically for the military once the war ended. Remember, all that productivity had to be turned back to focus on consumer preferences. So really quickly, I mentioned private GDP per capita. What that, If you take out the government expenditure component of GDP, because if you, if you just look at GDP, understand GDP is just it's consumer consumption plus private investment plus government spending plus net imports, which is, you know, export imports minus exports. Well, I guess it would be net exports, which is import, you know, exports minus imports. You could have negative trade balance. 
So basically, it's your trade balance, consumer consumption. It's the uh, government expenditures, which are just added in. So if you take that government component out of it, that's the pri- the rest of that is the private GDP. Now, finally, you know, tonight I want to add one last thought. In the politically incorrect guide to the Great Depression and the New Deal, uh, Bob Murphy, Murphy, who's the author of it, it's really really good book. He points out that the numbers being used to say that World War II helped the U.S. recover from the Great Depression were actually fraught with with fraud because they didn't account for the fact that there were wage and price controls in place, which totally distorted the the picture. And again, it created measures of data aggregates that looked nice, but if broken down into individual components, you'd probably say, oh, wow, this this doesn't look as, as good as it might as we thought about we thought it did at first look so um i know i said final thought but one last thought there there's a little bit more evidence towards milton friedman's heir and that comes in 2000 the period of 2001 to 2008 and the financial crisis you know that it that occurred so what the most recent financial crisis i think people will look back on in about a decade from now and say, wow, that was actually a second Great Depression and that what the Fed did and the fiscal stimulus and all that, it just didn't do anything. Um, the Fed did exactly what Milton Friedman suggested in 01. So you had the tech bubble and you had 9-11 and the, markets were, and, and the Fed did exactly what Milton Friedman suggested. And it, it, you got to realize stagnation just kept dra- dragging on. You know, the results are not very great, even to this day. It's true you, get, you got some of the same interventionist components as before, but it's not the same as the 1930s regime uncertainty where all the po- policies that Hoover and FDR were imp- implementing were totally unprecedented in the U.S. Yeah, there were some fears that Obama's underlying political ideology and beliefs were that he was or is a full-on socialist. Comparatively speaking, the policies he was implementing – to the unbiased economists were virtually no more interventionist than the policies we saw Bush implement. And not only at the end of Bush's term, but throughout his term, he was constantly intervening in the economy. So very Keynesian type economic, uh, you know, economic interventions from 2000 to 2001. This is the tech bubble at nine 11 Greenspan expanded the money supply significantly. And while the markets recovered, it did so as you can see in sort of a J shape, only to come collapsing down five to six years later. This time, Bernanke's the Fed chairman. The Fed begins dropping interest rates, then implements QE1, QE2, QE3. The money supply spiked, but the velocity of money, which measures how fast money circulates and and what what they call multiplies, it's been at all-time lows ever since. It keeps hitting new all-time lows. It's still an all-time low now. Nothing that the Fed has done has worked particularly well. Nothing the federal government did worked at all. In fact, much like wartime spending, it distorted markets. The bailout and the stimulus package did a number on markets and created precedents that were, for professional investors, at least scary and at worst, you know, moved a lot of cash on, onto the sideline for the better part of the last eight years while organizations with access to the Fed and ha- having a lifeline to the Fed, so to speak, bought up assets at whatever price, knowing that they can turn around and flip it to the Fed, you know, just in case shit hits the fan. 
this causes the depressions to be prolonged and only sets us up for more calamity down the road. During a market downturn, markets have to clear. Bad debts must be liquidated. Entrepreneurs with poor judgment have to go out of business. They have to have the assets of their failed enterprises auctioned off at low prices, fire sale prices, to new entrepreneurs. Those new entrepreneurs come in and put those assets, which can be bought at a discount relative to the inflated price during the bubble, they put, it, put, it to, put those assets to work producing goods and services that meet consumer preferences, and with a lower cost of capital, they could do, do so at a more attractive price. I, wanna, I, I know I said final thought a couple of times, but for real this time, last final thought. I, men, I mentioned a couple of these things earlier. So if tight monetary policy is what caused the prolonging of the Great Depression, then why was it that private GDP per capita that's excluding government expenditures, began to turn around after the money supply tightened. Private investment bottomed in 30 to do, 32. Money supply was at its tightest and had just contracted the most. Money supply bottomed in 33. Real per capita investment had bottomed the year before. And far more, far before money supply ever reached its 29 or 31 levels, private investment began to turn around and do so rapidly. If it was truly monetary tightening and not a result of regime uncertainty and government interventions, then why is it the money supply seems to have contracted into the face of the turnaround and only bottomed out after the private economy was turning around despite the government interventions, which once again came and forced the economy downward in 37 Think about that for a second. I'm going to leave you with that. That's all for tonight, folks. I hope you, you enjoyed the show. If you didn't listen to episode 20, then tonight's episode, I want to remind you, was a sequel to episode 20. It really needs the pretext of episode 20 to fully grasp the picture of what was going on. So I want to let everybody know about episode 22 really quickly. It's Friday, December 9th. It's going to be at 6.30 p.m. The founder of the anarcho-capitalist capitalism versus minarchy or minarchism debate uh, debate group on Facebook, Kyle Wagner, will be joining the Macro View for our first debate ever. So tune in live. Details will be shared via social media. It's going to be both exciting and intellectual, intellectually stimulating, I hope. So with that announcement, don't forget to follow our social media accounts. Facebook, it's facebook.com slash the Macro View. Twitter, it's at the Macro View. And if you're not watching tonight's episode from it already, go and check out tonight's show page, which is macroviewnews.com slash podcast, and it'll be the first post there. And most importantly, don't forget to share the macro view with your friends and family and help me to spread the logic of liberty. Hope everybody enjoys the rest of their evening. Take care, folks. You have been listening to the macro view. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific Time to help spread the logic of liberty. All right, everybody. So let's hop right into it here. So from 1921 to 1929, these are the, the de- this is like the decade leading into the, ni- the Great Depression, money supply increased by about 9% per year on average. And the expansion of credit with very low interest rates at every sign of a dip of the economy it led to massive amounts of malinvestment, particularly on longer-term horizon projects. And in 1929, all that pretty much came to roo- came home to roost. And 
you know, growth in earnings for public companies began to turn downward and then they began to contract. They actually dropped and that, that began to happen sort of in the late twenties. And though the data isn't great regarding public companies back then, because remember there wasn't any disclosure rules back then, the increases in uh, unemployment suggested basically what I'm saying here. And it just so happened that, you know, long-term horizon investments really weren't paying off. They weren't turning into to profitable enterprises. And this caused the market to crash. By the monetarist account of things, while they present all the data, somehow they missed the fact that the next three years, while money supplies barely contract, contracted before the 31, you know, 32 and 33 is where money really contracted, and even more so in 33. Um, if you actually take some time to actually think about what's going on politically at this same time, this was the time where there were the most severe governmental interventions up to that point in the history of the U.S. economy. If you actually, you know, think about what the Hoover, you know, the Herbert Hoover administration did, Hoover interventions, and then following that with FDR and the confiscation of gold almost immediately, and then the New Deal, you had massive expansions in regulations, and you had a president that spoke openly about stacking the court, which ultimately he did accomplish in his four elected terms. He served three terms and some change before he croaked. You also had Hitler winning a German election in, in 1933, and the rhetoric from him was pretty scary. And Japan invaded Manchuria, a region of what is now sort of spread out across China, Mongolia, and Russia. And remember, Korea had been occupied by Japan since 1910 until after World War II. In '36, Mussolini invades and conquers Italy. So just think about like all the crazy stuff going on at the same time. And to say that, oh, it was money supplies – you know, it, it really suggests more that private investment was really just spooked. And, uh, you know, it wasn't really monetary tightening that caused markets to tighten. It was, as Robert Higgs has put it, it was regime uncertainty. And regi regime uncertainty both abroad and at home and fears of a second world war that would ultimately come to fruition. These are what caused the prolonging of the Great Depression. It was really monetary tightening or a lack of doing enough from a monetary standpoint, like monetarists try to say, it was really just the naivety of the Fed at the time to think the interest rate was the only tool. And if they had understood how to implement a QE type program back then, if that were the case, then why was it not until 32 and 33 when you saw the money supplies decline t significantly? And then at that same time, 32 and 33, when the monetary supply was tightening, you had a roar in private investment up to the point where in 1940, prior to entering the war, and prior to the big spikes in government spending, you actually had the economy recovering, the private economy recovering. So why is that? You have the effects of massive tariffs, largest government interventions into the economy ever, including wage controls. And the, think about the effect of wage controls when there's massive unemployment and you know people have lost their jobs and they can't find a new job because wages are kept artificially high as prices are declining. Things like this were the real ca cause of a prolonged depression. If you just take a moment and think about it, this is the first time things like this were happening in the history of the United States. You can understand why investors would be a little bit spooked. And in 1933, 
FDR confiscates the gold. You think that had no no effect on people's psyche and the way that they were behaving financially? If you really just think about it and put yourself in, in the shoes of people at that time, you would be really spooked as well. You know, as we proved last night, it's a pure force to say that you know, Herbert Hoover relied on laissez fair. In fact, quite to the contrary, he bragged about being an interventionist in his 1932, in one of his 1932 uh, camp, election campaign speeches. And Murray Rothbard actually documents this in his book, America's Great Depression. During a speech of, in August of 32, Hoover summarized his interventions with the following statement. Quote, we might have done nothing. That would have been utter ruin. Instead, we met the situation with proposals to private business and to Congress of the most gigantic program of economic defense and counterattack ever evolved in the history of the republic. We put into action no governments in Washington as hitherto considered that it held so broad a responsibility for leadership in such times. For the first time in the history of depressions, dividends, profits, and the cost of living have been reduced before wages have suffered. And i take a break really quick from what, understand what he's saying, that wages were fixed. Unemployment was getting hammered. People were losing jobs left and right, and people were, were chronically unemployed and out of a job for a long time. It wasn't, it wasn't phenomenal. It wasn't like, yeah, wages were, were just good. It, as, a, as a result of these wage controls, and eventually government stepped in and, and, and tried to do stuff to prevent businesses from, being, uh, from having to let go of employees. But let me get back into the rest of Hoover's, the quote from Hoover. They were maintained until the cost of living had decreased and the profits had practically vanished. They are now the highest real wages in the job in the world, creating new jobs and giving the whole system a new breath of life. Nothing has been devised in our history which has done more for quote unquote the common run of men and women, which is basically like saying back then is like saying, you know, the average American today. Some of the reactionary economists urged that we would allow we should allow the liquidation to take its course until we had found bottom. We determined that we would not follow the advice of the bitter end liquidationists and see the whole body of debtors of the United States brought to bankruptcy and the savings of our people brought to destruction. So you understand that the mentality that Hoover had was that he actually did a ton to save it, to save the economy and didn't understand why he was being blamed for it, even though this depression, it took another seven years to recover from. Wouldn't it just be obvious to see that these unprecedented measures are what prolonged the Great Depression, not the monetary tightening, which had occurred many times pre-Fed and under the Fed during the... It happened during the 20 depression, during the 19, the panic of 1920. Isn't it also quite obvious to see that the expansion in the monetary base in the twenties led to the 29 crash and to advocate to just prop prices back up and not let markets clear would be just to the same thing as advocating for a bigger and worse crash later on, which in fact 
Alan Greenspan basically did. He said that we needed to replace the tech bubble with a real estate bubble. Now, I do want to dive into a little bit more recent history and, and touch on a few, more thi- a few more things in the last 10 or 15 minutes of my show tonight. But first, I, I, I do got to get in a quick commercial break, and then we'll be right back. Tired of losing debates to your left-leaning friends? Tired of being stumped by the state agenda? Feel you got gypped in school? Head over to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. You'll find a treasure trove of real history and economics. With well over 100 hours of lectures from the world's most preeminent libertarian leaders, you'll get the equivalent of a PhD in libertarian thought. Courses include Austrian economics step-by-step, the history of political thought, the history of economic thought, four different U.S. history courses covering it all, a full history of Western civilization, John Maynard Keynes, his system and its fallacies, and much, much more. So head on over to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. All right, everyone. Thanks for staying tuned tonight. We're going to try and run through some of the more recent monetary history. But before we do, I do want to take a a step back really quickly. So I want to go back to the money supply and bank failure statistics. Now, understand the money supply did not begin to contract until after Herbert Hoover began implementing economic interventions. Also, I should point out that it was in 1933, after FDR confiscated gold from the American people, that bank failures accelerated. Now, it's true over the period of 29 to 32, about 24% of banks failed. But in 1933 alone, 24% of banks failed. And in thir- 1932 is the next closest year, which had only 8% of the banks failing that year. And these uh, numbers were, you know, these years, and the reason for these numbers is that these years were just fraught with regime uncertainty, as Bob Higgs points out. Then, as I mentioned in the previous seg- segment, you had World War II bubbling up, going into FDR's second term, and then coming out of the war, FDR was elected to a third term. During the war, his, well, actually, he was elected to a third term during the war, and then a fourth term in 1946, which was right after the war, which again was unprecedented. And we had just finished fighting dictatorships that begun as, you know, a democratic election. It was unprecedented. It broke the tradition of peaceful transi- transition to a new president after two years that had been upheld since Washington. So while in 33, it was the bottom as, as far as bank failures and money supply in terms of the, you know, just the number of solvent banks. They started to pick up a little bit in 34 and 35, but then came a wave of failure, failure that set in again by 1942. And then almost a decade, you got to think about it. This is almost a decade later. It's leading into FDR's third election campaign. There had been a net growth of 1% in the number of banks from bottom. And then there's a slide of 7% from 1935. So within this this eight-year period or seven-year period, a slide of 7% in the net number. So I think it's very clear to say that regime uncertainty and an unprecedented level of government intervention into the economy dragged the depression on a lot longer than otherwise would have been. As discussed in episode 20, 
government spending during World War, World War II did nothing more than distort markets and uh, help to print data, aggre- you know, aggregate data numbers that kind of looked nice but didn't really mean anything. The Depression kept going, and officially, three years after World War II ended, real private GDP per capita bottomed out, and it took 17 years from that bottom to recover from the massive distortions created by government nationalization of industry and productivity that was specifically for the military once the war ended. Remember, all that productivity had to be turned back to focus on consumer preferences. So really quickly, I mentioned private GDP per capita. What that, If you take out the government expenditure component of GDP, because if you, if you just look at GDP, understand GDP is just, it's consumer consumption plus private investment plus government spending plus net imports, which is, you know, export imports minus exports. Well, I guess it would be net exports, which is import, you know, exports minus imports. You could have negative trade balance. So basically it's your trade balance, consumer consumption. It's the uh, government expenditures, which are just added in. So if you take that government component out of it, that's the pri- the rest of that is the private GDP. Now, finally, you know, tonight I want to add one last thought. In the politically incorrect guide to the Great Depression and the New Deal, uh, Bob Murphy, Murphy, who's the author of it, it's really really good book. He points out that the numbers being used to say that World War II helped the U.S. recover from the Great Depression were actually fraught with with fraud. Because they didn't account for the fact that there were wage and price controls in place, which totally distorted the, the picture. And again, it created measures of data aggregates <clears throat> that looked nice. But if broken down into individual components, you'd probably say, oh, wow, this, this doesn't look as, as good as it might, as we thought, about, uh, we thought it did at first look. So um, I, I know I said final thought, but one last thought. There, there's... A little bit more evidence towards Milton Friedman's heir, and that comes in 2000, the period of 2001 to 2008, and the financial crisis, you know, that it, that occurred. So, what, the most recent financial crisis, I think people will look back on in about a decade from now, and say, "Wow, that was actually a second Great Depression," and that what the Fed did and the fiscal stimulus and all that, it just didn't do anything. Um. The Fed did exactly what Milton Friedman suggested in 01. So you had the tech bubble and you had 9-11 and the markets were, and, and the Fed did exactly what Milton Friedman suggested. And it, it, you got to realize stagnation just kept dra- dragging on. You know, the results are not very great even to this day. It's true you, you got some of the same interventionist components as before – but it's not the same as the 1930s regime uncertainty where all the po- policies that Hoover and FDR were imp- implementing were totally unprecedented in the U.S. Yeah, there were some fears that Obama's underlying political ideology and beliefs were that he was or is a full-on socialist. Comparatively speaking, the policies he was implementing to the unbiased economist were virtually no more interventionist than the policies we saw Bush implement. And not only at the end of Bush's term, but throughout his term, he was constantly intervening in the economy. So very Keynesian type economic uh, you know, economic interventions. From 
2000 to 2001, this is the tech bubble at 9-11, Greenspan expanded the money supply significantly. And while the markets recovered, it did so, as you can see, in sort of a J-shape, only to come collapsing down five to six years later. This time, Bernanke's the Fed chairman. The Fed begins dropping interest rates, then implements QE1, QE2, QE3. The money supply spiked, but the velocity of money... It, which is measures how fast money circulates and, and what, what they call multiplies. It's been at all time lows ever since it keeps hitting new all time lows. It's still an all time low. Now, nothing that the fed has done has worked particularly well. Nothing the federal government did worked at all. In fact, much like wartime spending, it distorted markets. The bailout and the stimulus package did a number on markets and created precedents that were, for professional investors, at least scary and at worst, you know, moved a lot of cash on, onto the sideline for the better part of the last eight years while organizations with access to the Fed and ha having a lifeline to the Fed, so to speak, bought up assets at whatever price, knowing that they can turn around and flip it to the Fed. You know, just in case shit hits the fan. This causes the depressions to be prolonged and only sets us up for more calamity down the road. During a market downturn, markets have to clear. Bad debts must be liquidated. Entrepreneurs with poor judgment have to go out of business. They have to have the assets of their failed enterprises auctioned off at low prices, fire sale prices to new entrepreneurs. Those new entrepreneurs come in and put those assets, which can be bought at a discount relative to the inflated price during the bubble, they put, it, put, it to, put those assets to work producing goods and services that meet consumer preferences, and with a lower cost of capital, they could do, do so at a more attractive price. I, wanna, I, I know I said final thought a couple of times, but for real this time, last final thought. I, men I mentioned a couple of these things earlier. So if tight monetary policy is what caused the prolonging of the Great Depression, then why was it that private GDP per capita, excluding government expenditures, began to turn around after the money supply tightened? Private investment bottomed in 30 to do, 32. Money supply was at its tightest and it just contracted the most. Money supply bottomed in 33. Real per capita investment had bottomed the year before. And far more, far before money supply ever reached its 29 or 31 levels, private investment began to turn around to do so rapidly. If it was truly monetary tightening and not a result of regime uncertainty and government interventions, then why is it that money supply seems to have contracted into the face of the turnaround and only bottomed out after the private economy was turning around despite the government interventions, which once again came and forced the economy downward in 37. Think about that for a second. I'm going to leave you with that. That's all for tonight, folks. I hope you, you enjoyed the show. If you didn't listen to episode 20, then tonight's episode, I want to remind you, was a sequel to episode 20. It really needs the pretext of episode 20 to fully grasp the picture of what was going on. So I want to let everybody know about episode 22 really quickly. It's Friday, December 9th. It's going to be at 6.30 p.m. The founder of the anarcho-capitalist capitalism versus minarchy or minarchism debate, uh, debate group on Facebook, Kyle Wagner, 
will be joining the macro view for our first debate ever. So tune in live. Details will be shared via social media. It's going to be both exciting and intellectual, intellectually stimulating, I hope. So with that announcement, don't forget to follow our social media accounts. Facebook, it's facebook.com slash the macro view. Twitter, it's at the macro view. And if you're not watching tonight's episode from it already, go and check out tonight's show page, which is macroviewnews.com slash podcast, and it'll be the first post there. And most importantly, don't forget to share the macro view with your friends and family and help me to spread the logic of liberty. Hope everybody enjoys the rest of their evening. Take care, folks. You have been listening to The Macro View. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific Time to help spread the logic of liberty.